When you hear the word or the phrase Christian fundamentalist, what image comes to mind? Think about that. Is it a negative connotation, something you want to avoid? Like, like it's something you want to avoid sort of like COVID or the plague? Or is it a positive that you're like, I'd like to be that? My guess is that almost all of us would view this as negative. Unless perhaps you read the article that I put in Ebridge. It's true. We view the Christian fundamentalist through really a negative lens. That is proof that we've all been influenced by significant changes in the evangelical world in the last hundred years. Even most of us, most of us are not nearly a hundred years old. Most of us are much younger than that, even half that. And yet we've all been impacted by significant changes in the evangelical world that now views a fundamentalist through very negative eyes. What does that have to do with Jude? Because Jude is calling us to do something in verses 3 and 4 about to contend for the faith, something that is traditionally associated with being a fundamentalist, a Christian fundamentalist. But in the early mid-1900s, when the term fundamentalist was being developed, late 1800s, early 1900s, and that term fundamentalist was coming about, the only thing that you had to do to earn a label of being a fundamentalist was believe this book. If you believed this book, and you believed it was trustworthy, and you believe that it should be taken literally, like when Jesus said he, he rose from the dead, he actually did, then you were a fundamentalist. And that grew out of an environment of what we call Christian liberalism. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But that influenced. Right? So you had people that were calling themselves Christians, but some totally rejected the Bible. Some rejected the fact that Christ rose from the dead. They called themselves Christians. So the term fundamentalist kind of grew out of that, that idea, that what we might call a, a conservative viewpoint instead of the liberal viewpoint. Well, what Jude calls us to do is to cling to the faith, the, the word of God, once for all delivered to the saints. Now, before we dig in further, uh, let's just read it together. Jude, verses 3 and 4. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who have turned the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. We have looked in the past several weeks at verses three, verse three and then verse four. But this morning, I want us to kind of put them together not in, in a way that helps us understand the call because these things flow together. And I want to help us to understand why we need to spend just a little bit more time thinking about contending for the faith. Why? Why do we need more time thinking about something? These verses are straightforward. There's not. They're not grammatically difficult. The words aren't complicated. Why? Well, the first thing that that I want to draw out is what is in the text itself. Certain persons have crept in unnoticed. And and we we looked at that, but it bears repeating. They are in the midst. They are in the church today. That is the visible church today. They are part of the church. They are among us. Some would be pastors, some will be singers, some will be leaders of bands, some will be leaders of denominations. They've crept in unnoticed. And Jude was saying that like 2,000 years ago. So here we are today. The situation is not any better. And I would say the... Um, it's, it's worse today in some regards because the church has not contended for the faith. There are so 
many people within the church that look like Christians, but they're exactly the way that Jude describes them. They are ungodly persons. They look like Christians. They talk like Christians at times. But as we'll see, go through Jude, and as he talked about, they will be exposed either by their lifestyle or by their doctrine. And it is on those very things that we're told today within the larger Christianity, oh, don't judge. Don't, don't judge me. No, don't, don't judge how I live. Don't, don't judge my doctrine. But those are the very things that Jude says we are to look at. Now, we're not to become hypercritical. We're not to look with everybody with, with jaundiced eyes. That's not what Jude is saying. Right? But what he's saying is there are people within the visible church who look like Christians, who say they're Christians, but are not. And they're not there for just benign purposes. They are there, whether they know it or not, they're, they're plants of Satan to disrupt the church, to infect the church, to cause the church to stumble. And so this, this whole issue of contending for the faith bears repeating because we live in a culture that I would say hates fundamentalism and therefore hates fundamentalist, and therefore hates contending for the faith. Jude is a book that's ignored for multiple reasons I've mentioned in the past. But we um, must listen to what Jude has to tell us to contend for the faith. Now, who are these men or, men or women? Some of you have asked, can I name names? Right? The problem with naming names is, number one, uh, my list would never be exhaustive. Number two, there's new ones coming on the scene all the time. Third, I'm, we'd be here a long time, and it would be a boring sermon. Right? Jude doesn't name names. So for the most part, I'm not going to because... What, the, what Jude is wanting to do is to, to really rally us to be on guard and contend for the faith. You notice he, he doesn't name the opponents. He describes their character. He doesn't even describe the false doctrine they were teaching, really, other than to say they were denying their only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The, the Lord wants us to be on guard, right, in a general ongoing sense. If we diligently contend for the faith, then we won't be led astray by false teachers. That's just the fact of it. If we hold to the word of God, if we cling to the word of God, you won't be led astray. And you have a good shepherd who is there to lead you as you depend upon him. And you depend upon him through depending upon his word. So just let the reality sink in. That as you look at the evangelical world, they have flashy bands sometimes. They have popular music. They have very large, visible churches. You could almost use scare quotes around those churches. Those are not Christianity. If you look at the Word of God, compare what's going on in their doctrine and their life, you have to say they're not part of the Christian faith. Now, there, there may be some Christians, true, true Christians among them. That's very likely who are also being led astray. So I just wanted to bear again, to, or to repeat again, the fact that there are those among us today, among us, among the visible church today, who are not really Christians, who are ungodly persons who are seeking to disrupt and distort the church. But there's another important reason why we need to dwell a little bit more on James 3 and 4. And that is today, the majority of churches refuse to contend for the faith. They've decided that contending for the faith is not that important. Now, they would never say that, and they would probably disagree with me uh, that I'm characterizing them that way. But they have made a decision that love, love for the world, is going to be the supreme characteristic that everything else flows out of. And they define that love the way they want to define it, which is typically today acceptance, dialogue, not condemning a person, not judging them through the word of God. 
In, in the late 1800s, in the mid-1900s, I mentioned to you that liberal Christianity really began flooding mainstream Christian denominations. It, it, a lot of it flows from Europe, and it's some of the, what we call the, the theologically dead theologians of German, the German theologians that influence a lot of the mainstream Protestant denominations. And because of that, the, the church went astray from the truth. You have all the isms. You've got, you've got German rationalism, modernism, Darwinism, neo-orthodoxy, post-modernism, also called uh, emergent religion. All these things attacked the authority of the Word of God. They attacked the inerrancy of the Word of God. They attacked the reliability of the Word of God. And so you had very large denominations who at one point were sound and trustworthy straying away from the Word of God. And, and in that environment, you had a group of conservatives who believed the Word of God, and, and they rallied around truths, uh, fundamental truths. Um, they, uh, John MacArthur concluded that, that um, and I just quote him here, he said, with regard to the ever-shifting opinions of current scientific theory, th they viewed these as more trustworthy than divine revelation. And many today are perfectly willing to adjust both the moral standards and doctrinal content of Scripture to harmonize with whatever is currently deemed acceptable in the secular society. So there are people today that are very comfortable in a Christian environment adapting the truth in order to fit what is acceptable to our, uh, to our culture. And in the early, late 1800s and early 1900s, the, the, big, the big thing were these isms I talked about, but in particular, Darwinism. Okay? That was just flooding in to the church where, the, where the people were looking at the Bible, looking at science, and saying, no, science contradicts the Bible, so science must be more trustworthy than the Bible. They were coming to those kind of conclusions. And then those who wanted to rally around the Word of God were, were coming up with all sorts of strange uh, hermeneutics, uh, hermeneutical gymnastics to try to understand Genesis. That All that was, was uh, very unhelpful. Uh, MacArthur also writes, he says, the purveyors of this kind of skepticism are highly skilled at rhetorical sleight of hand. They will often claim, I firmly believe in biblical inerrancy, but whatever follows that conjunction, but, is usually the true indicator of a person's actual view of the authority and reliability of the scriptures. So they'll give some allegiance to the word of God, but they erode it at the same time. And that's where you get this, this debate within Christianity between you have the term inerrancy, um, where the word of God is inerrant, and and um, the other term just eludes me, so I can't give it to you. But there's another term that's kind of like a weasel term. Uh, it's good if you understand it right, but but it's less than full inerrancy, um, and I don't know why the term just escaped my mind. So my my apologies. But as many mainstream denominations strayed away from the word of God. There were some faithful conservatives who rallied together to say, these are the non-negotiables of Christianity. These are the fundamentals of Christianity. And hence, that's where we get the term fundamentalist from, is from holding those fundamentals. Now, the Lord has a way of keeping his remnant. This, this year's Shepherds Conference was shepherding the remnant. And, and all through the scriptures, God always has his remnant of people. Uh, his people, those who truly worship his name, are predominantly in the minority. And for some reason, we think uh, in this Western nation we call the United States that Christianity, true Christianity, should be in the majority. Right? But in actuality, the true church is a remnant. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because that, that is the pattern throughout much of history. It won't always be that way. In heaven will be the majority. There will be no remnant. But the remnant will be all together, and there will be countless numbers of us there. But the Lord had his remnant. Men like A.A. A. Hodge or B.B. B. Warfield or J. Gresham Machen, 
John Broadhouse, C.I. Schofield, and, and others. There's a long list of men who fought the, the battle for the Bible, as it's called. They were used, God used these men to uphold inerrancy and the authority of the scriptures. In the late 1800s, they rallied together to, to come up with, with five fundamentals. I don't know why only five, but they came up with five fundamentals that, that you had to cling to, you just couldn't be a Christian. You really legitimately couldn't call yourself a Christian if you didn't hold to these five fundamentals. I'll just give them to you. The inerrancy of Scripture. Secondly, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Fourth, the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And fifth, the imminent bodily return of Jesus Christ. Those five things, most of them all around Christ. The inerrancy of Scripture, because without that, we know nothing with any kind of surety. So the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, the um, physical resurrection of Christ, and the physical return of Jesus Christ to the earth. There were people actually calling those Christians who didn't hold to those. That's, that seems very strange, but that was the environment of the late 1800s, early 1900s. And, and so I, I mention these things not to give you a dry history lesson, but to help us understand, because we have a bad habit of forgetting history. We have a bad habit of not even knowing our own history. But this is your history. And these things factor into the environment that we are now in. So in that environment where these conservative Christians, real Christians, were, were rallying together around these fundamentals, then, then um, that was also the time when you had institutions like Harvard and Princeton go by the wayside. Like You don't think about Harvard and Princeton as solid, theologically solid institutions for training pastors, but they once were. Right? This is the era when they go astray. J. Gresham Machen starts Westminster Seminary to, as a reaction to that, to try to, to bring back the old Princeton that hold for the truth, uh, that held for the truth. You have the, the springing up of, of uh, non-denominational institutions to try to, to train up men for the ministry. Uh, you had the, uh, there are places like Moody Bible Institute and Los Angeles uh, Bible Institute. So these non-denominational churches held to the fundamentals and they were often called fundamentalists. So some of the fundamentalists uh, are portrayed right or inaccurately or accurately, they're portrayed very negatively. They're portrayed as always being on the attack. So, you know, the characterization of fundamentalists is that they're fighting fundies. They're always fighting somebody. And if they don't have somebody to fight, they'll fight themselves. And sadly, that's true sometimes. The fundamentalist churches kind of became caustic environments where legalism flourished. And, and they kind of, uh, they did what, what Paul warned the Galatians about, biting and devouring one another. And, and that's often what happened, not in every church, but, but by and large as a movement. And so it's like something... You didn't really want to be part of that. And in that environment, you have some, some movements uh, of God and, and, and within um, the evangelical world where you had men rise up and say, you know what, we want to hold to the fundamentals, but we don't want to do so at the cost of straining relationships. And so there rose men, right, among them Billy Graham, among the institutions that rose up, Fuller Seminary, institutions like these, magazines like Christianity Today, that was founded and worked, all these people worked together. They wanted to hold to fundamentals without breaking fellowship, without um, separating. Right? Fundamentalists are known for separation, separation from sin, separating from unbelievers. Um, and sometimes they go to extremes like second and third degree separation. Like, I can be your friend, but if you're friends with this other person, then I can't be your friend because you're friends with that other person. It, it's ridiculous things like that. Right? So that's what gave fundamentalism such a bad reputation. And Billy Graham and others at Fuller Institute said, you know, I, I don't want to have anything to do with that. But it wasn't just that. There's other things that happened. Like in 1925, there was what's called the trial of the century also known as the Scopes Monkey Trial. And the Scopes Monkey Trial was a trial in Dayton, Tennessee, 
that the state of Tennessee passed a law that's saying you could not teach the evolution of man. And we're talking about plants or animals, but the evolution of man, you could not teach that in the public schools. And that law was recently passed. The ACLU challenged that. And they put out an advertisement say, any teacher in Tennessee that's teaching evolution, please let us know. We want to use you uh, as a like a test case to challenge this new law in Tennessee. And, and they did. They found somebody. Right? There's a lot of misinformation out there. So if you go to look at it, I recommend you go to Answers in Genesis and look up Scope, Scope's trial and, and start there. Right? A lot of good resources. There's so much misinformation. The teacher is said to be a biology teacher. He wasn't. He was a um, PE teacher. I think he was a, a he was one of the a coach of a team as well as he was a math teacher. And he happened to substitute teach for a biology class for two weeks. So that's how he got his biology license, I guess. But he's a biology teacher in all the history books. And he's not even certain that he actually taught evolution. He wasn't even sure. They tried to get kids in there, students, and it was never even sure that he actually actually taught that. But the book that he used did teach it. It's interesting that while people are kind of highlight that, they forget that that same book supported eugenics. That same book supported the fact that whites were the supreme race and that blacks were sub or sub-race, things that, of course, is not true at all. But that, that book taught that, and it justified the, the, the limiting of, of, I'll use their term, races, the limiting of the procreation of certain races so that the superior races could, could take over. All that was in the textbook in a public school in Tennessee in 1925. What do you think is in your textbooks today? Right? So the world who pushes evolution so much wants to neglect the ugly past of evolution, which is the fact that it did support eugenics. It did support the fact that, that blacks were inferior to whites. That's ugly truths of evolution that those books contain, and yet all that gets whitewashed away. And it needs to be washed away because it's not true. But the evolutionists will point to, to some things versus others. So this the Scopes trial, right, was a trial of this one gentleman, and his last name was Scope, right? Whether he violated the law or not, and the whole thing, the whole court case became a circus. Everybody says it. It was a circus. It was the first court case to be broadcast live by radio across the nation. They had telegraphs going all over the world because this became not just a case about whether a substitute teacher actually taught evolution. It became a case of evolution versus the Bible. There's so much here, I won't give you all the details, but the net result of it is that the, the defense attorney for, for Scopes managed to get the prosecuting attorney onto the stand, onto the witness stand, and he cross-examined him or examined him regarding his belief in the Bible. And the arrangement was that the prosecuting attorney, who was a Christian, would take the stand and defend his biblical view. And then the defense attorney, who was an agnostic, who, who didn't really understand all that much about evolution, but he was, he, he was defending the case, he would take the stand afterwards. So this prosecuting attorney, who was a criminal attorney, that's uh, no, right, prosecuting the defense attorney was a was a uh, criminal attorney. He was known for taking on unpopular cases and winning them. Well, when he cross-examined or examined this this believer, right, he did so in a way that belittled the scriptures, right? because this person said that uh, who was on the stand, uh, actually the prosecuting attorney who was supposed to be anyway, said that he believed the Bible. And it should be taken literally. And and so the, they in the courtroom, the defense attorney was saying, you know, that whole story about Jonah, you don't actually believe that. That's so stupid if you believe that. And he was so caustic in, in the courtroom setting that the judge actually found him in contempt of court several times right, because of his antics. He belittled Christianity throughout the whole thing. And then towards the end, he's like, well, well Genesis, you know, Genesis... Genesis talks about 
you know, the, a six-day, 24-hour creation. You don't actually believe that. Do you? Does Genesis really, really hold to that? And unfortunately, the, the Christian who was on the stand held to a long gap theory. He was inconsistent in his view about the Bible. So he took it literally everywhere else except in Genesis. And so he kind of waffled there. And he said, well, there actually could be billions of years there. And so the, the, the defense attorney who was coming up, he, he's like, well, see, there's nothing wrong with evolution. Evolution is in the Bible. And then he rallied all these other pastors. Uh, he quoted them and had it read into the court record um, that of their views, of their interpretations that Genesis should not be taken literally. Why do I mention all this? It's part of your history. Christianity, fundamentalism, was belittled and made fun of on national radio. And at the end of it, the state of Tennessee won its case, although later the, it was upheld um, for, for other reasons. And, and the defense attorney never got cross-examined. you know why? Because he knew he won. He had managed to belittle Christianity. He didn't care about his client. At the end of the testimony session, he uh, told the jury that he's recommending guilty for his client. That his client was guilty as charged, which ended the trial. And so there was no cross-examination of, of the defense attorney to show the holes in his theories about evolution. Anyway, I say all that to say that because of the Scopes trial, right, to be a fundamentalist, to believe in the Bible, is something that our culture has ridiculed for quite some time. And this was popularized in the play Inherit the Wind, the movie that was made later, and there were at least four made-for-TV productions called Inherit the Wind. And they're all fiction because of all the, all the facts that they distort, but they they read, you'll receive them like it's actual history. Right? So misinformation is not new to our century. It's not new to us. So I say all that to say this is the environment. This is the Christian environment that we find ourselves in. We don't want to be fundamentalists. We don't want to be belittled and ridiculed. We don't want to be thought of as stupid for actually believing the Bible that, it, that, that, gen, that, that creation was made in six literal days because, well, look at science. Well, the interesting thing is, and Answers in Genesis does a really good drawing this out, all of the, all of the evolutionary uh, evidences for evolution that was used during the Scopes trial, all of those have been debunked. And the science keeps changing. So that the things that evolutionists used to uphold or look to for their evidence, they can't do that anymore. So science keeps changing. So why would you rely upon something that keeps changing instead of just relying upon the Word of God? Even if we can't answer all the details. But the environment we live in today is that kind of environment. That's why I'm drawing all this. I, I, I needed to take you through that to help you understand your history. We live in that kind of environment. So the world is telling us the, the, that creation is something that evolved. And they'll belittle people who actually believe in six-day creation. And, and can we answer all the questions? No, we can answer a lot of them. And again, Answers in Genesis does a good job with helping us to be equipped to answer them. But there are some difficult questions that we don't have answers to yet. And that's okay. Where you have a doubt, you trust the scriptures. They're unchanging. They're given by God. Um, but there's other issues, too, that undermine this. We live in a, in a society that wants to medicate everybody, that points to psychology as, as like the solution for mankind. But, but much of these psychologists, many of these psychologists, were ungodly men. They weren't even Christians. They didn't even pretend to be Christians. And yet the church today has bought into much of their logic and philosophy that runs contrary to the word of God. So case in point, just to, just to drive this home, our world tells us today that anxiety is something that needs to be medicated. But the word of God says us to do all things with, without being anxious for nothing. 
So the church, by and large, has said, you know what? I think anxiety, I think this this science of psychology makes more sense to me than God's simple word, which just says, don't be anxious. Like, I, I know you can't, you cannot, you can't just tell yourself that and stop being anxious. So I'm not, I'm not making it a simple thing. What I'm saying is the word of God says, don't be anxious for anything, but by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God and, and the peace of God will come upon you. Like, and what I'm saying is anxiety is not a medical problem. It's a spiritual problem. And that spiritual problem does have medical implications. So these things go back and forth. If you're, if you're, if you're struggling with anxiety, you're going to see it in your body. It's going to affect your body. Okay? But understand, we trust the Word of God. Do we understand the inner workings of, of the brain and all that goes on with that? No. No, we don't. There's a lot we don't understand. But we do understand as the Word of God says, don't be anxious for anything. So if God's Word says that, that's what you trust even if you can't understand all these other things. So if you're on medication for anxiety, don't, don't stop it. If you want to stop it, go, go talk to your doctor. I'm not telling you to stop today because those things have implications on your body. It's unhealthy for you just to stop dead cold. But what I'm saying is ultimately, this is a spiritual issue. Right? So work with your doctor. Tell him you want to get off of it. But, but I just point that out to say there are many areas in our culture today where the church by and large has said, no, I'll trust science rather than the Word of God. And there are just so many areas like that. How about gender? Right? We, expect, we expect the world to be confused about these things because Romans 1 kind of spells it out. That's part of God's judgment. That's the third step of God's judgment is just move, removing any kind of ability to, to be a sane, rational thinker. So the world, that the world is confused about gender is probably not a surprise to us. But this stuff's coming into the church. You have pastors that are transgender pastors, and I'll use that word in scare quotes, okay, because they're not that. But they're, they're transgender pastors or, or gay, gay pastors. They're not just, they're not just uh, uh, have an affinity towards towards same-sex attraction, they're actually practicing and calling themselves pastors. Why? Because they're trusting the science. They're trusting society more than they're trusting the Word of God. So this this is the environment that we find ourselves in. So the, the task that Jude calls us to is not a popular one. It's going to put you at odds with other people who call themselves Christians. And we just have to seek to hold fast the truth, be as loving as we can while not abandoning the truth. Because what happened to men like Billy Graham and Fuller Seminary and Christianity Today and there's a litany of others, they found that they really couldn't hold on to the fundamentals and have a working dialogue with those they wanted respect from. There's going to be a compromise. And unfortunately, that compromise has been truth, not the relationships. And there's a long history of that. I, I, if you want to read more about it, you can read um, uh, Evangelicalism Divided by Ian Murray. is one that's, that's helpful um, to understand some of that that's going on. But, but what I want you to take away from this, that's our environment. What do we do? If we want to contend for the faith, what do we do? So... The, the title for this sermon was Learning How to Contend. It's really the foundations for contending. There's, there are things that must be, in, our, be, be in, in place in our lives if we are going to contend for the faith. And, and this won't take long to, to run through these. Right? To contend for the faith, you must be a genuine Christian. You must actually know the truth. Right? It kind of goes without saving, but, it, but in, in the same token, I need to, to state it. Uh, look at 1 Corinthians 2. We're just going to do a little survey here of several passages. 1 Corinthians 2. And we'll be looking at verses. uh, I'll just read verses 1 to 16. But really hone in on verse 14. 
Paul is explaining his strategy, his ministry strategy to the Corinthians. He said, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, the things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The, the mind of Christ being revealed in the word of God. Notice that, that Paul there is contrasting the, the natural man or the unspiritual man and the spiritual. The, the natural man, the unspiritual, cannot understand the things of God, cannot understand the wisdom of God. They're foolishness to him. So when, when the, a, a natural man reads about the virgin birth, they say, oh, that's foolishness. When they hear about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they'll say, oh, that's foolishness. Right? But the, the Spirit of God teaches us that these things are accurate and true. These are miracles of God showing God's power and is part of the, of the gospel through which he saves us. And God helps us to understand and to trust these things. Not that we understand all the inner workings, but we understand and trust. And where we don't understand, we trust the Word of God has explained all that we need to understand. And so you must be a Christian to contend for the faith. Uh, Just understand what the Lord is doing. If you are unconverted, um, obviously you're not probably going to want to contend for the faith. If you are unconverted, know that the Lord's heart, the Lord's call is for you to enter through the narrow gate. You know, Jesus himself said that the way to destruction is broad and many are those who find it. But the narrow gate, the, the gate to the kingdom of God, to salvation is narrow. And so the call and plea is for you today to enter through the narrow gate. The narrow gate is Jesus Christ, trusting in him for the forgiveness of your sins, that he died on the cross, that he was re- that he was dead in the grave, that he was resurrected in newness of life, and, and lives on high, and one day will return. But he, he came to deal with sins. You trust him in Jesus Christ, and you will enter through the narrow gate. And that begins the life of a contender, those who are contending earnestly for the faith. So to contend for the faith, you first of all must be a genuine Christian, Secondly, to contend for the faith, you must trust the scriptures. I've touched on this and talked about it, but we must trust the scriptures. And I intentionally put trust before understanding, which is the the next thing. We need to understand the scriptures, but we must trust the Bible. We must be convinced that it is the word of God. And, And I don't ask you to accept these things on blind faith. You read the word of God yourself. And, and the Bible is self-authenticating. Yes, there are external proofs that we could point to to help support this is actually the Word of God, and those things have their place. But ultimately, the Holy Spirit is the one who convinces you that this is indeed the Word of God, and He does that with you reading it. So read it. You must trust it. And so when you don't understand a portion of Scripture, or, or a portion of Scripture runs contrary to what... Um, 
science is telling us. We trust the scriptures, right? We trust. That's your de- that you learn to make that your default position, trusting the scriptures. And and I want to give you a, a scripture verse to go with that. Second Peter. Second Peter chapter one talks about the the, the origin of the word of God. Second Peter one. Going to begin ver- reading in verse sixteen. This is Peter relaying, um, describing his preaching of the gospel. He said, "For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ." Peter's saying, "We didn't make this up. We didn't come up with this. It's revealed to us. We didn't invent it. We didn't sit around and say kumbaya around the fireplace and think about you know with some songs and some guitar music. I don't know if they had a guitar then." But instruments, right? And and try to figure all that out. He said we didn't we didn't do that. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw this. And and he describes the, the uh, one point in time when he did see Jesus' glory. He said, For when he received honor, that is Jesus, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, speaking to the Father. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Peter saw Jesus' radiance, a glimpse of his glory, and he heard the Father's voice. Peter's an eyewitness of these things. He's relaying to them. So look at verse 19. He said, uh, verse 18, he said, We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. More sure than what? More sure than an eyewitness account. The word of God is more sure than an eyewitness account. Look at what he says, verse 19. To which you do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. That is, it's really talking about the origination. For, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Holy Spirit moved men to write exactly what he wanted written in a way that in most cases is not dictation. There are some places that are dictated in the Bible, but the Holy Spirit did that. But he moved men to write exactly what he wanted to write. And look at what Peter's saying. How should we respond to this? Verse 19 you do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. When you're in a really dark place, that one lamp is a, is a comfort and it's a source and it's a help. It's a, it's a source of, of just truth, of knowing like what's around you and how, how to, to navigate even that, that room that you're in or wherever that you're really dark. You pay attention to that one light. So Peter is saying, pay attention to this light. In other words, trust it, trust it. There are other places that we could go to emphasize this. Second uh, Peter three, I mean Second Timothy three, uh, sixteen and seventeen. All scriptures is God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. It doesn't say. It says all scripture is God breathed. It doesn't say part of scripture is God breathed, and you have to figure out which parts are that is. It doesn't say. All scripture is God breathed, but this portions where it talks about science isn't exactly right. That's kind of poetic. No. All scripture. Will people look at you funny? Do you actually believe that? Yes. Yes. It's the word of God. It's trustworthy. So to contend for the faith, you must actually believe the Bible. Or else you obviously aren't going to contend for the faith. But recognize there are going to be plenty of people out there who call themselves Christians who aren't going to believe the Bible. Now, not all of those are unbelievers. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying there are unbelievers within the church who masquerade as Christians who don't believe the Bible. So they're out there. Be on guard. Don't let them shake you from the foundation of trusting God's word. So when people don't contend for the faith, they're showing that they really don't believe 
all of the Word of God. They, they really are not relying upon the Word of God. So when you encounter some difficulty, trust the Word of God. Right? Trust the Word of God, especially if, if science or a culture is telling you something else. Don't doubt the Scriptures. Doubt human wisdom. Doubt science, because science just keeps changing its answer on, on some things. Well, to contend for the faith, you must be a genuine Christian. You must trust the scriptures. Thirdly, you must understand the scriptures. Right? You must understand it. Look with me in 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2. And I want to point you to verses 14 and 15. So Paul is telling Timothy in his last letter, right before his death, to, to train men who will be faithful to train others. That's the context. So in verse 14, we see this. Remind them, the them are the ones that Timothy is to train, to go and teach others. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God, not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of here. So when we're contending for the faith, we're not to be obnoxious. There are times where it's best just to just to walk away. Uh, we're not to, to wrangle about words, which is what he's saying. Verse 15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Which implies that if you don't, if you're not working to be diligent, you're not going to be diligent. You've got to set your life pattern to study the scriptures and to do so diligently. There are Christians out there who aren't making this effort and therefore are misinterpreting the scriptures and misunderstanding them and misusing them. And in the end of the day, any, any Christian who is um, misusing the text is going to be ashamed at how they, how they didn't understand the text. Because Jesus is going to look at them and he's going to say, one of his one of his popular phrases that he used for the Pharisees and Sadducees, have you not, what, read? Have you not read? Didn't I make that clear? What's difficult about that? Well, in most cases, the scriptures aren't difficult. They're difficult sometimes to accept because they run, they run it contrary to what we want to do, and they run contrary to the culture. But in most cases, they're not really all that difficult to understand. There are some portions that are difficult, but most of it is not. Most of it is not, especially the things that run contrary to the things in our society right now, like who's a man and who's a woman. Not difficult. But you must commit yourself to a pattern of reading God's Word, studying God's Word, listening to good sermons, and learning from others. Sometimes... I hear a comment from people that come into this church that they get the impression that we're all super Christians, that we all have super Bible knowledge and they feel way out of place and uncomfortable with that. Just know that that I love you guys. I know you're growing in the faith and I appreciate it, but I, but I know like we're, we're not uh, above average Christians. Right? So if you're here this morning, you're thinking that you're in, in good company. We're just Christians, right? But sometimes people react this way. They, they're, they're like afraid to come to a Bible study because everybody else seems to know more than they do. Heard that comment more than once in the, the nine years I've been here. Well, why is that a bad thing? Uh, I mean, think about this. Solomon used an ant to teach his son wisdom. Proverbs 6.6, 6, he says, Go to the ant, O slugger. Observe her ways and be wise. There was something, some wisdom to learn from an ant that his son didn't have. And his son could say, well, that ant knows so much more than I do. I don't feel comfortable hanging around it. I'm doing that funny on purpose. Right? No, if, if you feel like everybody else knows more than you, then no, that's a good place for you to be. Because the scriptures say, if you want to be wise, you hang out with the wise. You want to grow in your Bible knowledge? Then you hang out with people that have more Bible knowledge than you do. Why do you want to hang out with people that, that have the same exact knowledge that you do that don't challenge you to grow? I, I don't understand that philosophy. He, 
Proverbs 13.20 says, He who walks with the wise will be wise, but the friend of fools will suffer harm. Right? It's a good thing to be challenged in your knowledge. Sometimes it exposes the fact that you, that maybe you came to faith later in life and you don't know so much that even some younger people know. That, that's okay. God saved you later in life. Just, just learn. Don't let pride get in there and, and disrupt that. Just learn. Go be a learner. Be humble and learn the Word of God. Right? So you must understand the Scriptures. Because sometimes fundamentalists, right, in the past, they fought for things that weren't in the Scriptures. Right? Like dancing or buttons on clothing. Like that, that's, that's ridiculous, but it actually happened. Right? And we could go through a, a list of those. But those things aren't in the Word of God. So we must know what's in the Word of God, what is to be defended, and what other things are Romans 14 issues, where we just let people make their own decision as best as they know how. There are plenty of Romans 14 type issues. So to contend for the faith, you must understand the Scriptures. Now do you see why our culture doesn't contend for the faith? Number one, it doesn't. Many of them aren't saved. Number two, they don't trust it in areas where science contradicts it. Number three, they haven't set themselves to understand it. Their idea of a church service is to have a praise band and some smoke and lights and to send you away with a warm, fuzzy feeling that you've experienced the presence of God. And while you might go home from a service like that feeling pretty good about yourself, it's not going to edify you. And you're not going to be built up in the knowledge of the Word of God, which you need to be steadfast and immovable, which you need to have a healthy spiritual life. Our world is just rushing, especially the Christian church is rushing into that. And even in the the conservative evangelical world that that we would run in, in, there are people who who are looking to experience the presence of God in a worship service. Lord, I don't know exactly what they mean by that. Is that a warm, fuzzy feeling? I know I'm in the presence of God if I'm greatly convicted of sin after having read his word. I know that I'm in the presence of God all the time because his Holy Spirit lives within me. We know that. We kind of forget that. That doesn't come with a feeling. I'll know that I'm in the presence of God when I see him and behold him and I'm transformed to be like him. But we need to be very careful with, with that. But, but that's what our, our Christian culture is aiming for, is to, to send you away or send Christians away with some fuzzy feeling um, that they have experienced God. Another, let's uh, say the fourth foundation for continuing for the faith is this. You must train yourself to discern truth from error. So we're to understand the scriptures, But then we have to learn how to use those scriptures, how to discern between truth and error on difficult issues, how to discern uh, good from bad. Look at Hebrews 5 a minute. Hebrews chapter 5. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 5 is is speaking of Christ in in 5. I'm going to pick up in verse 11. Concerning him, that is concerning Christ, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have not, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. So he's really kind of rebuking them, not kind of, he is rebuking them for not pursuing knowledge of the word of God, for not growing in that knowledge. In verse 13, I want you to see this. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. Then verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Notice that term practice, because of practice. So you're taking in solid doctrine of the word of God, and then you're through practice, you're having your senses trained to discern good and evil. So when you go to contend for the faith, you're not always going to do it the right way or, or uh, land the right stances. You're going to learn. 
you're, you're going to hold fast the word of God. You're going to ask for advice. I'm available to you as a, as a shepherding resource, as a pastoral resource. You see something that's questionable. Then you, then you look at that, discern, try to reach your own judgment. Then just run it by me. And I can give you my thoughts. Right? Might, might be the same conclusion that you reached. But I'm willing to come alongside you. I'm not only willing, it's my duty and my responsibility, but it's also my joy to help you walk through, help you learn how to discern what's what's error and what's truth. I just want to rattle, just hit some, some verses very quickly here uh, to help you get the impression that of how much the Bible emphasizes this point. Just, just listen. 1 John 4, 1 to 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now is already in the world. Test the spirits. Be discerning. Listen to this one from Jeremiah, going to the Old Testament. Jeremiah 29.8 For thus says Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh is the Old Testament name of God, covenantal name of God. Some translations would use the Lord there. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel. Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you. And do not listen to your dreams which you dream. For they prophesy a lie to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares Yahweh. Think about what that says about the modern charismatic movement. Do not listen to them. Do not let them deceive you. And he says here, do not listen to your dreams which you dream. There's a lot of reports that Jesus is appearing to people in their dreams, especially in the Muslim world. But I fear that this is just another ruse of Satan. Because one of the requirements to be an apostle was to actually see the risen Christ. Who was the last apostle to see the risen Christ? Hmm. Paul. And in his description, he says, when he's talking, in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's talking about all those that Jesus appeared to, he said, and last of all, he appeared to me. He could have said, oh, and, and next, he appeared to me. He said, and last of all, he appeared to me. Now we know later, he appeared to John, but John had already seen him, John the Revelator in Revelation. But I don't think Jesus is making appearances to people in their dreams, but I know Satan would love to masquerade that way. So we will know, we will know in, in time whether these things are of God or not, as time and truth go together, as to whether people are really holding to the Word of God and walking with Christ. But there's strong language in the Bible to guard against listening to your dreams and listening to those who call themselves prophets. Right? How do you know if they're telling the truth or not? Go to the Word of God. The Word of God is your source of truth. Second Thessalonians 2, 1 to 3. Now we ask of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken in your mind or be alarmed, whether by a spirit or a word or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you. So there were deceivers then, and, and Paul was envisioning that there would be someone who would come with a spirit prophesying that the day of the Lord's already come. They might even manufacture a letter as if from Paul to say the day of the Lord has already come. Paul said, don't believe them. Don't, don't be deceived. Galatians 1, Paul deals with the Galatian church, those churches in the Galatia area. He says, I marvel that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to the gospel we have proclaimed to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is proclaiming to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let him be accursed. So Paul is saying that if an angel from heaven came and appeared before you and the message from that angel was contrary to the written word of God, you are to have nothing to do with that angel and do not believe him for he is accursed. 
But our modern world, our as a modern world, our Christian modern world, wants to go after the angel. It's the spectacular. You know, there's all the stories of heavenly tourism that are out there as well. It's nonsense. It really is nonsense. Do not be fooled by these things. And Paul, once again, First Thessalonians 5, 19-20. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. And by prophecies, he's not necessarily talking about stuff about the future. Scripture is called prophecy. Right? Remember from Second Peter 2. Right? Um, do not despise prophecies, but examine all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So you take in the message, like a message today. You take it to the Word of God. That what is accurate from the Word of God, you cling to that, and you abhor everything that's evil. All that is to say, train yourself. You are called to this. Train yourself to discern good and evil. The last thing I want to point, the fifth point, and these, this, this list isn't exhaustive, a uh, foundation, but, but these things must be there. You must be a genuine believer, trust the scriptures, understand the scriptures, and you must train yourself to discern between truth and error. The last one is, you must con- to connect, contend for the faith, sorry, to contend for the faith, you must love Jesus Christ more than anyone else, more than anything else. Listen to Jesus' words to a church that was was discerning truth from error. Listen, Revelation 2, verses 2 to 5. Jesus says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you have found them to be false. So the church is actually doing what Scripture says. They're testing people that have come to the church that have been they say they're apostles, but they've been tested and they're not apostles. In other words, they're false apostles. And verse 3 says, And you have you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. So they've endured some level of persecution for the name of Christ. And you have not gone you have not grown weary with this. That is, they haven't abandoned the truth. But in verse 4, he says, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. But if not, I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. But Jesus is telling this church that was doctrinally orthodox that's left its first love. What does that mean? It, it, it means that, that they are no longer doing the things that they're doing for the right reasons. It's a dry orthodoxy. There's no longer vitality to their to their life with Christ. We're not given the details. Perhaps they were no longer individually, collectively praying or really reading the Word of God. They had a doctrinal statement and they were testing, but it was a, a dry orthodoxy with no life or vitality, which can be a problem with some fundamentalists even today. There's, there's a dryness, a deadness to the faith. But Jesus calls us to living with him, walking with him, there's a vitality. So as we contend for the faith, our, our overall motivation and our foundation for, for contending is out of love for Christ. Out of love for Christ, we believe his word. Out of love for Christ, we defend the scriptures. Out of love for Christ, we study the scriptures. Out of love for Christ, we're discerning truth from air. Out of love for Christ, you can take it further, we're in that contending for the faith, we're evangelizing those who are believers. But to love him, and we must never forget that. You can be doing all the right things, but if you ha- do not have love for Christ, right, then as a church, we are a complete failure and, and a church the Lord would rebuke. And, and again, this is love the way that God defines love, not the way our world defines love. This isn't speaking of love and acceptance. This is our love for Christ because of his love for us. He first loved us. That's why we love him. So that's what this is talking about. Beloved, hold and cling to the scriptures. And if that makes you a fundamentalist in somebody's eyes, so be it. 
So be it. I know there's a lot of baggage with the word fundamentalist. I don't like it either, especially because of Islamic fundamentalists and all the harm that they bring to the world. But if what they mean by that, and you can ask them, what do you mean by that? It's a good question. Especially when somebody gives you a label. What do you mean by that? How do you define that? But if what they mean by that is that you cling to the Bible, don't shy away from that label. Say, yeah. If if believing the Bible makes me a fundamentalist, then I am one. And I do that because I love Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, help us to love your word, ultimately to love you. We don't set the Bible on a pedestal and bow down to it as, as if the Bible is our God. You are our God. You are the living word. And your spirit has authored the written word, which is in perfect alignment with your will. Lord God, make us to be a people who contend earnestly for the faith. For there are deceivers amongst us. Lord, help us to walk in obedience to the truth. Help us to be a church that holds the truth, Lord, and that is faithful. Faithful to your word and passionately loving our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.